Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The state of Connecticut has the highest average credit card debt in the nation. Are you surprised by that? Although personal finance courses are offered in high schools, students aren't required to take those classes. And these classes often don't address the complex financial challenges of their students. Today, we talk about giving more students access to financial literacy and making that curriculum more inclusive. Did you learn about credit cards, budgeting, or taxes in school? How were you taught to manage your money? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining us now to talk about everything that I just mentioned is Dana Miranda. She's a founder and financial educator of Healthy Rich, a newsletter that focuses on inclusive, budget-free financial education, and she is based in Wisconsin. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dana. Thanks for having me, Catherine. You're here, Brian, early for the both of us, but just a little bit more for you. I uh, just want to start the conversation by asking, you know, how did you first get interested in writing about personal finance? I kind of stumbled into the topic. I was working as a freelance writer for four or five years, um, always just interested in writing. And a staff writer job became available at a media startup that was running a personal finance site. And I was interested in working with the editor who was hiring writers um, and the team that she was putting together. And I actually thought personal finance would be kind of boring, but I thought it's a writing job and um, it'll be a good opportunity to see what I can do as a writer. And I got in and as a journalist, um, I was able to speak with experts and do research and learn about our financial systems and financial products. And it all became really interesting. Um, and I I stuck with it. I was at that job for four years and then um, continued on on my own after that. I definitely feel you. I also started as a freelancer and many things sort of just kind of fall on you and then you you sort of latch on to it. And it's really fun to hear that you became interested in finance because I think it's one of those subjects that's really hard to make it interesting. But as you said, it's really important. So how do you think we learn about financial literacy and personal finance? Because so far, it doesn't look like it's really being taught or taught well in schools. That's right. It's it's kind of ad hoc around the states as a lot of uh, topics that we cover and a lot of legislation is. So it kind of depends on where you live, what kind of financial education you might or might not have access to. So we tend to learn about finance either just from experience, kind of trial and error, um, which is what a lot of us do throughout our lives, and through conversations with the people around us. We watch how our parents um, talk about or don't talk about money, how they feel about uh, debt and spending and things like that, and just sort of absorb those experiences and stories and take that into the ways that we interact with money as adults. 
And what does that look like based on your reporting? Because you're talking to experts, you're talking to people, you know, what were the conversations like when you're asking them about their finances? There's actually kind of a disconnect, I think, between if you talk to experts or listen to the advice that experts are giving and the experiences that people are having in their lives, because money for us in real life is really an emotional relationship that we're dealing with throughout our lives because we are so often learning from those experiences, which include positive experiences. They include traumas and uh, they include kind of everything um, just like any other relationship that we have in our life. Um, It really kind of seeps in deep down. And so the way that we're making decisions and the way that we feel about money is often something that's very subconscious that we're not quite aware of because we also have a stigma against talking about money. And when you speak to experts or you get expert advice, it sort of takes all of that out of the equation and expects us to make very perfect economical decisions based on numbers and spreadsheets and a set of rules that seem to make economic sense. But it completely ignores the nuances of our real life experiences. And so there's a disconnect for us are in our lived experiences because we're hearing this set of rules and most people understand the sort of basics that they're being told are the right things to do with money, but it doesn't really play out uh, in our real lives quite that easily. It's, it's a lot harder to make those decisions because they ignore the real things that are happening in our lives. Right. And I definitely want to uh, dive deeper into that and as we talk about this. But, you know, we just mentioned that because financial literacy isn't taught well early on for a lot of people. In fact, I don't even know if I can remember um, it being even touched on when I was in high school. And so there's a whole industry devoted to financial literacy and teaching people money management. Can you talk about what that looks like and the attitude towards budgeting and personal finances? Yeah, the the industry has sort of cropped up, I think, to answer the questions that people are asking as they especially move into adulthood, move into jobs and, and having to manage money for the first time, having to deal with credit for the first time. Um, we naturally have questions about how to deal with all this stuff, um, trying to sort of sort through those stories that we heard early on and those experiences that we had. Uh, And so it's just sort of private industry. It's a lot of personal finance media, which is where my roots are. Um, And then from that has cropped out a lot of sort of educational resources um, that also find their ways often into schools. But they are tied to, they're all kind of rooted in one very limited perspective. There's not a lot of diversity in the industry and not a lot of diversity of thought. And so what I saw when I was working in personal finance media was that most of the sites, um, most of the writing comes from middle-class white men, largely. Um, There's a minority of women, there's a minority of people with disabilities, people of color, LGBT people, we're not hearing those voices a lot in personal finance media. And what that means is that we're not addressing the financial concerns that are very specific to 
these marginalized groups of people. And so the advice that's coming down is assuming a lot of privilege that comes with having been raised middle class uh, as a white man. And it seems very obvious to those the people giving advice, things like um, budgeting, we just say, spend less than you earn. And they kind of lay it out, um, don't take on debt, all of these things feel like very easy, obvious rules to someone who is not facing systemic barriers and, and a history of financial trauma and all kinds of things that are sort of being ignored. And so these kind of voices are are being left out um, and it's really impacting the quality of advice and information that's out there. And I want to talk more about the various advice that you see from not just the media, but also from financial advisors. But I also want to ask, you, know, you use the term budget culture a lot in your writing. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, budget culture is a little bit of what I was describing, where it's just that kind of one singular perspective on how we talk about money. Um, I see it as the way that capitalism itself shows up in the ways that we teach and talk about money. So when we boil it down to just that sort of one perspective, there's an assumed goal of just becoming rich, um, which ends up looking like wealth hoarding um, and a lack of generosity. There's the rule about budgeting, um, which leans on restriction. And then a lot of shaming around debt and spending. And so budget culture sort of shapes the beliefs that we have about money around restriction, shame, and amassing wealth. And so what you just mentioned, it does seem like it's very structured. And as we've talked about just earlier, that it sounds like this is not something that's a one size fit all scenario. So can you talk more about that very prescriptive advice? Yeah, we tend to approach financial advice from this one size fits all sort of place. Like I said, it's we assume that there's a singular set of rules that should work for everyone. And if your financial situation is not what you want it to be, it's because you're not following the rules properly. But that completely ignores, of course, systemic barriers that people face to getting jobs, to building wealth, to managing their money in a way that's comfortable. And it also ignores the individual nuances of your life, all of those histories that you bring to your relationship with money that I mentioned earlier that impact your day-to-day, minute-to-minute interactions with money. And especially based on what we were just talking about, do you feel sometimes the advice can be reductive, especially since some expenses are stagnant, sometimes our budget changes from month to month, and like you said, um, it doesn't work for everyone, and the fact that budgeting doesn't really take into account what real life looks like. Can you help us understand that better? Absolutely. Um most budgets assume a stable monthly income and stable set of monthly expenses. That's really where they start um, because the math kind of works out better that way. And, and they're a lot easier to structure if that's the case. But really, regardless of your resources, your privilege, whatever it is, that is not really what money looks like in real life for people. Your income fluctuates. You might have um, even if you have a stable salary, you might have 
receive gifts or windfalls at different points that impact how you're going to manage your money. Um, expenses certainly fluctuate, even the things that we consider kind of regular expenses, our utilities and things are changing. Um, unexpected expenses are always coming up with life. We have events um, that happen. We have gifts we have to buy. We have emergencies and surprises um, that that cause extra expenses in our lives. And some budgets attempt to account for that, but nobody can predict the future and we can't perfectly plan out our lives so that they fit into these perfect sort of budget spreadsheets. And so if you're trying to manage your money through a budget that wants to track every dollar, plan every dollar, and in particular restrict how how and where you're using your money, you're really, you're either going to completely fail or you're going to find yourself constantly thinking and worrying about money and where every single penny is going. And that doesn't achieve what you would expect the goal of budgeting to be, which is to improve your quality of life through the way that you're using money. I was going to say nothing, no plan is perfect, really. And I was actually just talking with a friend over the weekend. Speaking of fluctuating situations, she went from a corporate job to going back to grad school. And so hence you mentioning that life changes a lot and there's unexpected surprises when it comes to finances. So how do you think budget culture backfires? Because it does impact on mental health, right? Absolutely. And it like in the situation that you just described, if we are thinking about money through that budget culture lens and listening to budget culture messaging, it can push us into making decisions that are solely based on our finances. It can cause money to really drive those decisions. And so if you think that your financial situation needs to look a certain way, you might not decide to go back to grad school, or you might decide to take a job that doesn't fulfill you in the way, you know, that it should, it doesn't meet all of your needs and wants. And that's really defeats the purpose, I think, of money, which is just one part of our life. Um, It shouldn't be the driving force. And I think that when you sort of give into budget culture messaging and follow that way of managing money, that can really easily become the driving force and the main thing that you're thinking of. And if it's not, if that's not how you're making decisions, then it can cause you to feel a lot of shame or blame yourself for the way that you're using money. Um, And that can be just as harmful to your mental health. We've been talking about financial fluctuations and sort of on the same line, we have a call from Tony who's from Wallingford. Tony, you are on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question, if I may. I was wondering about um, savers, spenders. How much is it really, really associated with the personality type? Because I, 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 over the years, over the years, I've, 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 I've tried to help non-savers, and, and um, it's not that easy. I've also seen savers where it seems it just seems to come naturally for them. I've seen spenders that are very good at spending, but I've also seen 
spenders that are not so good. They struggle. So I was just wondering how much is, is it really associated with the personality type? Is that something that is part of who you are? And if so, how to best help, help those kind of people? Am I making sense? You're absolutely making sense, and thank you so much for your call, Tony. Dana, I don't know if that's something that you can answer, but is it something that you've heard, and, and what are what's going through your mind? Absolutely. I think that in general, in our culture, we turn to kind of personality types and, and categorizations to better understand ourselves, and there are a lot of issues with that because it, again, is it's sort of putting people into boxes and and that takes away a lot of the nuance. But I do appreciate in personal finance when we look at personality um, types and characteristics like that because it's starting to open the conversation to things beyond, like I mentioned, numbers and spreadsheets and starting to understand that there's a lot more going on when you're making financial decisions. The problem that I see is when it becomes used to uh, point out deficiencies in people. And so a lot of times we say whether savers or spenders are the better way to be and sort of name yourself as one or the other in order to find what is deficient in you and what needs to change when I think it's much more useful to use something like that to better understand a dimension of your relationship with money so that you're understanding how you're making decisions and why and what is going to best serve you going forward because you have that better self-awareness and understanding of yourself. Be careful not to use that necessarily to punish yourself or fix yourself toward what our culture says you sort of should be doing. I really appreciate um, that the caller mentioned some people are good with saving and some people are sorry, spending and some people struggle with spending um, because that can be just as detrimental to your experience as struggling with saving money, which is something we put a lot more focus on. Well, and then Tony, I mentioned that you know, this is based, his question is based on personality, but we've been talking about sort of um, how to make financial literacy a bit more inclusive because it doesn't seem like race, economic status, and gender are really factored in when a financial literacy is being taught. I think I know the answer to this one, but should they be included? Um, can you talk about how personal finance reinforces certain cultural bias? They absolutely should be included. And I imagine just like with anything in education, they're largely not being included and discussed because of how challenging it is um, to teach personal finance in a way that actually incorporates the nuances of every student's experience that is very difficult, um, especially when you're tasked with teaching a set of rules about money. It's difficult to incorporate these layers of cultural bias, systemic inequalities, um, personal experience and nuance. But I think it's really important that we try to do that. But that really starts so far back with the inequalities that are baked into our educational system in general. Um, we see that really mapped on to the financial education that students are receiving, that it aligns with the same inequalities along racial and 
socioeconomic lines that all education um, is experiencing. You've been listening to Dana Miranda. She's the founder and financial educator of Healthy Rich, a newsletter that focuses on inclusive, budget-free financial education. We'll have a link to her newsletter at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. She'll be staying with us. And coming up next, we'll continue our conversation about financial literacy. Dr. Monette Ferguson joins us to talk about her work with the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport. And you can also join the conversation. Drop us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today is all about finances and what we can do to be better educated when it comes to financial literacy. Where we teach is also just as important as what we teach. Having financial literacy can be empowering, especially for underserved communities. It can lead to a stronger workforce, secure housing, an increase in food security, and overall independence. A recent study from the Journal of Financial Economics says financial education affects financial knowledge and that there's a correlation between having a better understanding in that area that can lead to a better life. And here to help us better understand what those challenges can look like is Dr. Monette Ferguson. She's an executive director for the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Ferguson. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And Dana Miranda, founder of Healthy Rich, a newsletter that focuses on financial education, is also still with us. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Dr. Ferguson, you've been listening to our previous conversation. Can you respond to what we've heard so far from Dana? Absolutely. Um, Thank you, Dana, for giving such a well-rounded perspective of um, how we experience or we don't experience uh, financial wellness in our communities. Um, There is such a disparity um, of how information is shared and whether information is shared with certain communities. Uh, The community that I'm from and the community that I serve so proudly um, is not just deserving of this type of information to help evolve 
out of a space of, of deficit, um, it's necessary. Uh, so thank you, Dana, for sharing that perspective. And I agree wholeheartedly. And Dr. Thank you. Oh, Dr. Ferguson, can you tell us a bit about what you do at your organization, you know, in Bridgeport and talk about the challenges of serving this area? Absolutely. So Alliance for Community Empowerment is uh, formerly known as ABCD, um, is a community action agency. We'll be celebrating 60 years of empowering our community through state, federal and philanthropic resources. Um, our mainstay programs are our energy assistance program, which helps low income families and, and homes, um, excuse me, and community members stay warm and and really heat and, and have um, electricity and utilities at times where it's difficult to afford. And we all know that those times are now. In addition to that, we run the largest Head Start, Early Head Start program in the state uh, where we serve a thousand families with um, with quality early childhood experiences, including our home-based program. Um, in addition to that, we have several other programs, including workforce development, um, case management, uh, homelessness prevention and intervention, uh, job search, GED, and I can go on. So our list of programs clearly point to uh, the name of our organization. Uh, it is our job and our responsibility to empower our community. Specifically, um, our largest population we serve is in Bridgeport, though we do serve eight towns um, in the surrounding area as well. Um, Bridgeport is the largest population that we do serve. Well, your list already tells us that you wear many hats. And from our previous conversations you and I have had is mostly about childcare. And now we're switching gears talking about finances. So Dr. Ferguson, I want to ask, you know, what do those conversations look like with communities that you serve? You know, what are some of the issues that people are facing? Absolutely. So so those conversations are sensitive. As my colleague uh, alluded to and spoke very eloquently about earlier, um, it is it is our job to create relationships with our community members. So so these conversations aren't as emotional and difficult, but nonetheless they are. So when a community member engages us for resources, they are typically at their wit's end. Um, it's it's an issue of pride. It's an issue of um, necessity, and it's difficult for folks to come and ask for help because. Um, a lot of that, a lot of times that help is not easily accessed. So, so when folks come to us and they're in need, it's our responsibility to again, create a relationship with that community member. We do an assessment of, of every, every community member that we touch. And we look at the things that are going well, and we look at the things that we could evolve in and we can get going on a, on a better track. A lot of times financial wellness is at the core of the issues that that we that we encounter every single day, um, a, a lot of our community members just don't make enough um, to to live well here in in Connecticut. Um, I could tell you the cost of living, and as you all know, is significantly high. Specific to Fairfield County, there's such a disparity with the haves and have-nots, and the have-nots struggle. And I love that both you and Dana mentioned the emotional aspect of financial literacy or financial wellness, because I think we tend to think of these things as very black and white and very structured. And I do want to ask you first, though, why do you use the term financial wellness rather than financial literacy? 
So when we think about emotions and how we feel, I think about words and how words make people feel. And financial literacy to me is a little sterile. Um, it's a little cold. It's a little distance from what we want to create when we when we connect with a community member. And when I think about wellness, I think about wholeheartedly this this idea of of how we think wellness touches every aspect of our lives, and that's you know mind, body, and soul. Um, and to me, that's a better way to reach someone. And words matter. Words do matter, and wellness. You know, speaking. In, especially during times of uh, post-pandemic, still during in the pandemic when it's very much still in front of us, um, and potentially you know economic economically and maybe troubling times. How, how are you having these conversations with people who who are already having challenging lives in general, but to have all these other outside factors sort of I don't know um, just kind of like thrown in at them? You know what are what are those conversations like? Yeah, I, I think it's most important that we recognize that our community members are already beginning um, to evolve at a place where they were behind um, and and by no fault of their own, whether it's um, the barriers that are set in our community are they're they're timeless, right? They've been here forever. So so when we start with the community members that seek help from Alliance or when we do outreach, we recognize and and we very, 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 we're very aware of uplifting the fact that we know it's difficult. There are systemic barriers that in, are in place. And let's start from where we are. So that relationship building, um, my organization thankfully has a 60-year history of touching folks when they're need when they're in need the most. So we stand on that history and we begin to develop a deeper relationship. And again, I just like to uplift the fact that a lot of our, our families and our individuals we touch are, they deal with generational poverty. So this isn't the first time we're seeing a family member come to our doors or we come to them to offer resources. So we begin to continue to develop that relationship. Um, again, emotional, hard, but there is hope and there are resources and programs and information that can help folks evolve out of this situation. Um, and, and we do talk hope and we do talk situ situational poverty because sometimes and a lot of times, a lot of our, our community members are, are one paycheck away. We're talking about an Alice population versus this stereotype that folks are kind of just poor and sitting around just waiting for another, you know, um, welfare check. Those days are far, far gone. Um, what we see now are literal working poor, hardworking folks that are desperate to make ends meet and are trying to get their head above water. Well, you just mentioned situational um, poverty and um, Dana also mentioned uh, systemic uh, poverty and, and it's a systemic problem. And I'm glad that you mentioned there's a generational sort of evolution as well. So how do you navigate that generational poverty and to help start breaking down that cycle? Yeah, thankfully enough, folks trust us enough to come to us in the situation that they're in. And we could see and we could plan forward from that point. Clearly, you can't go backwards. You can't undo what's done. But you can infuse hope 
and information into the situation and the family member or the community member that that is being impacted at that time. So at the point where the problem or the issue is presented to us as it relates to finances, we're able to plan and to work through and identify areas um, that could use an infusion of wellness when it comes to finances. So when we think about when I think about income, if there's not enough, what are those ways? What are those 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 core ways that we could raise that income level in that family? Is that training? Is that um, is that college? Is that cert a certification? Is that connecting? And, and usually it is connecting that community member to a program or to a resource that fits their lifestyle and fits. Um, what goes on in their household so they could still maintain that area of wellness. Um, we think about childcare. We think about those barriers, as my colleague spoke of. We think about a lack of childcare, a lack of transportation, and then connecting community members to resources that can help not erase those barriers, but help to create a plan to kind of to kind of help evolve out of those situations. Well, and I, I, you know, I know you just, you just mentioned a lot of uh, connecting the people that you've been speaking with and trying to help them out with services and, and all, all of that. And I want to ask, you know, how do you help them sort of set the groundwork for a better financial future? You know, I can imagine everyone's circumstances must be uniquely different from each other. So how do you help build them, build that foundational groundwork? Yeah, I think it's important to meet folks where they are. Um, you know, we, we have, uh, I, I'm a dreamer, right? So uh, when I say dreamer, I think big and I dream big and, and I start with the end in mind. But when we touch our community members with this sensitive issue of finance or lack thereof, we have to meet folks where they are and start the conversation where they're ready to start. So sometimes it's budgeting, sometimes it's higher education and skill building, sometimes it's job search, but a lot of times it starts with that conversation and being sensitive to where folks are ready to go in an incremental way that makes sense for them and their family. I might know the answer to this next question, Dr. Ferguson, but do you think there's a need for more agencies like this to, or like yours to help help with what we've just been talking about? Uh, you know, big shout out to my nonprofit brothers and sisters across the state and the country. There is great work going on in this space. Do we need more? Not sure. Do we need more funding? Absolutely. Um, the need has grown. It has magnified and been magnified after and during COVID. And here we are, I dare I say, post-COVID. And we're really thinking about this emergence of folks to get to get back to where they feel that they're safe and, and they're well. Um, there's great work happening with organizations like mine and at mine. But we definitely could use a boost of funding so we can help folks evolve as we and and, and it helps the entire economy and the entire and the entire state um, be well at the same time. Dana, I want to bring you back to the conversation real quickly. Uh, Dr. Ferguson earlier mentioned uh, helping the generational gap and 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 helping sort of understanding of cultural biases. So I want to ask you too, you know, how do we start to incorporate teaching students about that understanding of cultural biases and um, generational poverty into money management and personal finance? That is a challenge that I hear from educators who are really interested in having this more nuanced conversation about money um, and moving beyond just that sort of set of rules. It 
It's definitely a challenge, but I think that you can sort of weave both in. Some of it is a an issue of dealing with time constraints. Um, if students are guaranteed financial education in school, it's usually just one semester. And so educators are prioritizing, you know, what can go in. Um, but I think that you can always layer on this deeper discussion. So teach the basics and then bring into the discussion questions about where these rules might sort of break down for some people. I always encourage uh, discussion questions around like what, so here, you know, here's how our credit system works, for example. And then to ask students questions, how might this impact someone who is like you or someone who's not like you? What challenges might people in your community face given that this is how our system works? Um, I think that you can teach the information and the strategies alongside having these deeper discussions just to get students at least thinking about those connections to the things that they're learning about with personal finance. You've been listening to Dana Miranda. She's the founder of Healthy Rich, a mm-hmm. newsletter that focuses on financial education, and she'll be staying with us. You were also listening to Dr. Monette Ferguson. She's the executive, executive director for the Alliance for Community Empowerment in Bridgeport. Thank you so much, Dr. Ferguson, for your time today. Thank you. We'll be diving deeper into the educational aspect of financial literacy or financial wellness. Coming up next, the Council for Economic Education will be joining us. You can also join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping straight back to our conversation about financial literacy. And we have Nan Morrison, who is the president and chief executive officer of the Council for Economic Education. Thank you so much, Nan, for joining us today. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So, Nan, I want to ask you, the landscape of our economy and of financial literacy has changed a bit over the last couple of years. You have a new initiative to get financial literacy in every state. Can you tell our listeners what that looks like? We do, and we're very excited about it. Uh, as was indicated earlier on, Dana mentioned this, not every state requires personal finance to be taught in the schools. We think that's a problem. Only about half of the states do. So we teamed up with a number of other organizations. There's a new announcement coming out today about yet another one to form FinEd 50. And the goal is to work together state by state, community by community to encourage the states to act on making sure that every child has access to a class at least one semester of uh personal finance education before they graduate from high school, because that's the real issue is is access for us. Uh, Research has shown that if you are in a a state that does not have a requirement 
there's a big access gap. Not surprisingly, children from wealthy communities are um, probably, um, you know, very, very likely could be, uh, you know, 60% or so likely to get at that education, even if there's no requirement. And um, it's 16 points less if they're uh, for children from low and moderate income communities, that's if there's no requirement. So if you have a requirement, that access gap shrinks quite a bit. So so having that requirement can really go a far a long way toward um, achieving equitable access. Um, but we think all students should have this this knowledge. And there are lots of reasons why kids don't pick this up just along the way. So we want to try to solve for that. So, Nan, how do you think the financial literacy landscape is changing, especially in an ever-changing economy? You know, I find myself having these conversations even just personally with friends. You know, we weren't planning on talking about financial literacy or access, but it pops up because it's very much there in our everyday lives. So how do you think that has changed? So I, I think that things things are always changing. So our organization, the Council for Economic Education has been around for 75 years and um, the needs are, are always there. They look a little different. How you behave in a high interest rate environment is different than how you might be, behave in a low interest rate environment. It influences lots of things. The key, I think, from our perspective is to give kids an understanding of knowledge and, and tools, not necessarily rules, which was a, an important point that Dana brought up earlier in your broadcast, because different rules are going to work for different people and in different environments. But if you understand goals, choices, the tools that you have available to and have that knowledge, uh, making, making changes and adjustments uh, in your life is much easier. Um, because at the end of the day, people have a desire to live a life in a certain way. And that's going to be different, you know, even with any small group of people who are very similar in terms of their backgrounds, they could all have different goals. So we're very focused on tools and knowledge. Um, I kind of liken it to, to swimming. If you, you, you always know the basic strokes, but you probably employ them a little differently in your technique. If you're swimming in a pool, which has lanes and you can look down and see the lines, or if you're swimming in a quiet lake, or if you're swimming on the ocean, you still have to be basically good at swimming and understand those things, but you have to know how to adjust. So um, part of the way we approach financial education is giving kids the ability to make adjustments as the economy changes, because it always will. Although I have to say, you know, the, the pandemic in particular really stripped bare some of the big inequities in our, in our system in many ways. But this was, and we were just one piece of that in financial education. Right. And we had spoke about that earlier, where that's, that sort of is inclusive in the conversation about generational poverty and systemic issues. And the pandemic certainly is playing a huge role in that. And, you know, you spoke about understanding of tools and knowledge. So how do you build that understanding for each student's unique demographic and financial background when it comes to teaching financial literacy, especially since race, social economic, and gender all play a big role in someone's financial future. They they do. And uh, we try to be sensitive to that. So of course, part of what we do is train train educators. Um, and and I have affiliates across the country uh, that are working on the ground with teachers and schools every day. So we get a lot of 
really good information from our educators. We were talking to them constantly. We also um, worked very hard with another organization, Jumpstart, to bring together a coalition of educators from elementary school through college level, um, uh, professors, economists, to develop a new set of financial education standards. And, and those, again, are not rules, but they tell they talk about the kinds of things that the kids should understand how to do. And a very important piece of that was, one, upgrading them to understand, uh, to include new ways of thinking about things because certain certain things have changed. We had to add a lot about the fact that, you know, we live in the cyber world now. So cybersecurity is a part of that. But also these were equity reviewed to make sure that the what was relevant. And our lessons are also have also been undergoing over time uh, this change to make sure they're inclusive. Um, we've also um, have some professional development offerings that are around culturally responsive teaching, which help a lot of our educators, um, and they're delivered by educators from very diverse backgrounds. And they help our educators to understand this. So um, let me give an example. So it's important to understand how credit works in this country. Well, you don't want to shame somebody into not having any debt and not having a credit score. But in some communities, and I was talking to somebody just like you several months ago, and she said, you know, it's crazy. My family were immigrants and we were we were brought up that, you know, debt is bad. So we we saved, we paid cash for everything. And then we went to get a loan. My parents were so excited they were going to buy a house and they didn't have a credit score because we didn't have any debt. <laughs> so so um, so really, you know, being able to address that need in a thoughtful way is important to us. And it's important to the educators that we work with. So they inform us and we, we inform then other educators about uh, what we need to, how we need to approach these topics in class in an, an appropriate and thoughtful way. Um, about two thirds of the teachers that we work with are teaching in Title I schools, low and moderate income schools. So, so we hear this quite frequently. Um, I'd just like to take a moment to address the gender issue because for high school girls, we have a program called Invest in Girls that um, allows girls just to talk about money by themselves as, as girls or, or um, children who identify uh, as female, uh, because the conversation is different. You know, it's different when you or I are with our, our, our girlfriends than when we're with um, a mixed group of people. It's just a different conversation. This gives them ease. Uh, this program also has a particular focus on girls of color from marginalized community communities. So that's another way that we address this at the high school level. A second part of that program is a career access program to start introducing girls to careers in finance and financial services. So they understand what's available to them in that world. And um, we're not pushing that as a choice, but we want them to have access to the knowledge to know that this is an option. Because uh, if you have financial skills, jobs in those arenas are a key to financial stability. Uh, because every, everybody, every place needs a finance person. I have a CFO. I run an $8 million not-for-profit. Um, it's not just about Wall Street. It's Main Street. Every, every store walking down the street in Bridgeport or New York City has somebody paying attention to the money. 
And I know we. So that's how part of how we address the gender. Sorry. No, no, absolutely. And I, I just want to say that we only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to ask. We have focused this conversation on students and what we can do for them during high school. I certainly can't remember if I had any financial education at that age, but also for adults,、um, Nan, who has never received a robust financial literacy or wellness education, what can be done to sort of help continually close those educational educational gaps? Well, it takes a it takes a community, and、um, you know, Dr. Ferguson talked about sort of all of the services that、um, uh, people people need and might need access to to be be helpful there. So、um, there, and and as adults, the needs are are often often different. It's usually a point in time need. So、um, for people with credit challenges, credit counseling really works. There's free and available credit counseling from some federal agencies, and I'm sure. From more local not-for-profits who serve specific communities,、um, employers can actually be super helpful with helping adults, in particular young adults. They can make sure that if they're offering a 401k plan, and every employer should offer some kind of savings plan if possible, to opt people into those so that they have to choose to opt out, even if it's just one percent. Getting into that habit makes a difference. Um, and um, providing financial uh, wellness uh, support in the workplace, short short classes can be really helpful just to start making making things kind of accessible uh, to to uh, to adults.、Uh, we run family nights、uh, at schools,、um, and one of the nice outcomes of those is not only that the kids have fun and learn something, but it starts to open up the dialogue with the adults, with the parents or caregivers and their students. So、uh, they start to feel more comfortable about asking questions, and I think that's the hardest thing with adults is that sometimes people are really scared to ask ask the question. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Nan. It's always good to、uh, put some fun into、uh, financial literacy conversations. You've been listening to Nan Morrison; she's the president and CEO of the Council for Economic Education, and you've also been listening to Dana Miranda, who is the founder and financial educator of. Healthy Rich. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.